All right. So, um, any questions about the temptation of Jesus before I start going to the things I want to chat about? Um, yes, Donna. Mm. And I, I'm glad that you emphasized that this morning mm. uh, because um, I don't think I, I did fully grasp that. Yeah. Yeah, let me, let me, yeah, that's, that's the point I want to talk about specifically. Um, the temptation for us, I had a professor, McDougall, who used to repeat this over and over, and now I sort of, the more I've been in ministry, the more I see why. We, are, we have a tendency to humanify his deity or humanize Jesus' deity so that when we see him in, say, Revelation chapter 1, where John falls down on his face as if dead, we sort of, you know, casually walk up and give him a high five. And yet, on the other side, to deify his humanity, so at the very times we're supposed to marvel, at the very times we're supposed to have our jaws drop at his triumph, we think to ourselves, well, you know, it can't be that hard. Um, and, and I think that's precisely the error we've got to avoid against. Um, and and we also tend to think that just because something can't happen, that it doesn't mean that there aren't required means to ensure that it doesn't happen. I'll give you a simple example. Can a true, born-again, child of God, elect from the foundation of the world, ever be lost? No. Yet the Scripture has absolutely no problem saying, persevere in faith, else you will perish. Hebrews 12, pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I warn you now as I warned you then, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We get this again and again and again in the New Testament. And what we conclude is, God will not lose any of his because the good shepherd will leave the 99 and go after the sheep. He will not ultimately let a sheep wander off and fall off the cliff and die. That doesn't mean there isn't a real cliff, and that doesn't mean there isn't real danger, and that if you were to go over the cliff, you would perish. Does that make sense? You tracking what I'm saying? So we wrestle with that right there. Well, I thought you can't lose your salvation. You're right, you can't lose your salvation, but you can't lose your salvation through the means of the good shepherd who lets no one slip through his fingers. You tracking what I'm saying? Um, does, does that concept make sense? We, in other words, it's not as though, because you can't lose your salvation, you do whatever you want to do. And the shepherd doesn't need to shepherd anybody because after all, they can't be lost. It's precisely because the omnipotent, perfect shepherd says, I will go after them. I will not let them slip through my hands. That is the reason why no one is lost. And, but, but it's only because the good shepherd is committed not to lose any that no one is lost. Does that make sense? So therefore, this good shepherd, in a sense, needs to shepherd his flock to ensure that that is, happens. Now, because he perfectly accomplishes all that he wills to do, he will perfectly shepherd. He will not lose any. Be- <laughs> One of the ways that the good shepherd shepherds us is by telling us to stay away from the cliff. <laughs> Fair enough. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no. One of the ways the good shepherd shepherds his flock is he calls them by name and they hear him. Hey, turn around, come back over here. And he does that through his word. And so, no, we absolutely need to turn around and come here. Um, Absolutely. So the scripture has no problem telling us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God is at work within you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Right, so, so absolutely, um, you know, one of the ways the good shepherd shepherds the flock is he calls them and they come to him and they follow him and, you know, and I and I leave the darkness and walk back into the light and I don't require a, a shepherd's crook yanking me, you know, I, I like it better that way. Um, 
Um, so does that distinction make sense? So now here we go. Jesus can't sin. He's the sinless son of God. But the reason he can't sin is he will always fight. He will always respond in faith. He will always buckle down and quote scripture. But Luke wants us to see it's precisely through those means that he triumphs. He doesn't just sit back and have it all the temptations bounce off him and be like, Satan, you stop wasting my time. That's not what we're supposed to see. We're supposed to see. I mean, in fact, one of the things that really connected for me is one of the reasons Jesus succeeds as he does in Luke 4 is because in Luke 2, he's studying the word day and night at the temple. In preparation, I must be about my father's will, my father's business, my father's things. Um, and it's not as though when Satan tempts Jesus, Jesus just says, well, you know, that's nice and all, Satan, get out of here. And certainly by the time we get to the garden and he's sweating as if drops of blood, that is outright deceptive on his part if it's all fake, if it's easy as can be, easy as pie. Um, it's deceptive to pretend to be in agony. Um, and, and so we got to wrestle with that. Now, here's one observation. People will say, how can Jesus be tempted because he's not a sinner? And we're tempted because we have these desires in us that, that raise up and war within us. And that's what James says. And I think we know from the Bible that sinless people can still be sincerely tempted. Why do I say that? How do we know that sinless people can be really tempted? Adam and Eve, right? They, they had no indwelling inherent sinfulness within them, and yet they were both successfully tempted. So it is not accurate to say that without sin on the inside, you can't really be tempted. Um, Adam and Eve proved that, right? Okay. So one of the things I noted, and here's where I start connecting some of the dots, is, is our temptation is usually one of two sorts, and they can blend. Sometimes we just want wicked things. If you've ever desired to get drunk or high or to commit adultery, what you want is in and of itself wicked. What you want is in and of itself forbidden. What you want is in and of itself wrong. It is never right to want those things. There is no legitimate expression of those things. Those are desires we kill. But the example I used of wanting to take a nap when you're at work, there's nothing fundamental. What you want is not a bad thing. Um, what you want is fine. But now it's not the time for it. Now it's not the place for it. You want it in an illegitimate way. And that's, that's something else. And it certainly seems like I, I don't think Jesus ever, I mean, this is where I'm guessing, because I'm going beyond what the text says, which is we want to be careful. None of the temptations that we see of Jesus involve him wanting something fundamentally wicked. What's he want? Food? What's he want? The nations? What's he want? His father's protection and care? What's he want in Gethsemane? Not to be crucified? None of those things are wicked. None of those things are corrupt. None of those things involve Jesus desiring something inherently wicked. In every instance that we see of Jesus being tempted and tested, it's how to get the good thing that is the issue. That make, you track with me? That makes sense? So they're really, I mean, I really think the thought of food, I mean, I know how my stomach cries out for food after, you know, six or ten hours without eating. I mean, after 40 days, the thought of food, I think it's a real pull. The question is, and he doesn't know how long he's going to be fasting in the desert wilderness for. We know it's been 40 days, but he doesn't know in advance. Does his father want him out there for 60 days? How much longer is this going to go on? He doesn't know when it's going to end. And the temptation is, stop following God's leading, stop following where God's taking you, and you know, use your own prerogatives. You are the son of man, after all, the son of God, after all. Command these stones. You know, that, that's the temptation. Um, 
Any, okay, so I've been doing a lot of talking. Any, yes, Carol. Right. No, we don't like later. We want it now. Um, Oswald Chambers I gave us the definition of lust is I have to have it now. Mm. Um, yeah, that's good. That's good. The, the temptation is waiting, right? God's going to give you... I mean, we know from Matthew that as soon as Satan leaves, God sends angels and feeds Jesus. It's just in God's time, not Jesus' time. And we know that Jesus will inherit all the nations of the world, but even he, in his humanity, says he doesn't know the day or the hour of his return when he will claim them. I believe he does now, but when he spoke on earth humbled, I don't believe he did. Well, I know he didn't because he said he didn't. Um, and the Father's protection and, and the Father's love and care. We're, we are fickle people, and we can see God's protection. And then the next, it's like Jesus feeds the, the thousands in John 6. The very next day, what sign will you give us that we might believe? And then in case Jesus doesn't get the, the memo, our fathers ate man in the wilderness, Jesus. Hint, hint, that bread thing you did yesterday, you know? And, and so there's this temptation to constantly want to see. So God will, God will do something. We'll see his work. We'll see his handiwork in our life. We'll see him work for us. And just like the Israelites, just, just as this temptation, a few days later, weeks later, we'll want some fresh, does God really care for me? Really? Wouldn't it be nice if God just showed up miraculously and did something wonderful to prove to you that he... And what we learn from Scripture is, if God satisfied that desire, we just keep wanting new signs. A new sign for a new day. And so God does show his concern. He does care for us. He does stop our feet from falling on the rocks in his time, in his way, not on our schedule. Um, and, and anyway, yes, Elsa. Yeah. 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 No, that, that's absolutely it. I mean, um, one of the most convicting things. I think I told you the story, but I'll, I'll tell you quickly again. There is a woman I knew in California, um, the wife of Bible study leader. Um, her last name was Salt, and um, she had uh, become a Christian while married, had three or four kids. And the husband, when she became Christian, didn't like that and divorced her and basically made her out to be some sort of lunatic fringe, you know, Bible, you know, thumping. She, she lost all the kids, which is unusual in California. The f husband got full custody. And she chose not to really fight back and could have got it all dirty and ugly with lawyers and stuff. Chose not to defend herself. And... Um, and yet in God's providence, one by one, as the kids turned 18, they all voluntarily chose to come live with her. And I was sitting at dinner table, at lunch on a Sunday afternoon around a table, and one of my professors, Professor Cregan, was there. And he said to her, how did she endure? Um, he used to ask her, how did, you, how did you put up with being so attacked and mistreated and maligned and ill-spoken of? And not just having other people think you're weird, but losing your kids as a result. I mean, that was rough. 
And, and I'll never forget her response. And she said it, I think, not knowing how... Sometimes when people say things, they could be cliche if, they, if the person knows what they're saying works. And she just said, I just thought of, I just thought of Jesus and all the mistreatment he puts up with, and he's waiting on his father's time to be vindicated. He's waiting on his father's timetable for when every mouth will be shut. And if he can wait, I can. And I was just, whoa. That was, that was heavy-duty stuff. And I don't think she got how heavy-duty that was, or otherwise it probably would sound kind of trite or pathetic. And, um, and so that's, that's the thing, is waiting on God's timetable. I want it now. I want to be vindicated now. And there's a sense in which that's fine to ask God for. I mean, David, vindicate me according to my righteousness. I've done no guilt. They're falsely accusing me. Oh, Lord, arise to my cause. You read the Psalms. The desire is fine. The question is, we bring our petition, God, I, I'm being mistreated and misused, and I don't like it, and I'd like it to stop. Would you please vindicate me? And God says, no, or not now. Now what? So there's nothing wrong in wanting it. There's nothing wrong in bringing it before God. What's wrong is not accepting God's answer. Well, then I'll vindicate myself. Thank you very much. I mean, really, that, that becomes the, the issue in every instance is will I do for myself? Will I come out from under him and do for myself for, or force his hand in the final temptation? Um, or will I trust him and his timetable and his provision? Yeah. Um, any other thoughts, questions, observations? Yes, Jeremy. Yeah. And I, as an adult, see people around you that, what I would say, struggle with things like alcoholism or you know whatever. And you talk to them, and they don't view it as a problem. And you just think, how in the world do you not view it as a problem? And then that quote is how they don't, mm. because they don't they don't understand the power it has because they're not right. If every time your desires say drink, you say yes, you don't know how powerful that desire is. It's one of the reasons why periodically I'll take, sorry, periodically I'll take breaks from caffeine and things because I want to just get an idea of how, how much it's got to, I mean, I like my coffee, you guys know that, but I'll take a week or two week long coffee fast once a year or so just to make sure I can do without it. And that's when I find out how much I like, I find out how much I like coffee when I say no to coffee. I don't find out how much I like coffee when I say yes to coffee, right? Um, you don't find out how strong the German army is by surrendering. You, you find out how strong the German army is by fighting them. I, I love that quote. Yeah. In that sense, Jesus is the only realist. But then also, it helps us to picture people around us. Um, we, we look at them and we think, how do you not see this? How do you not? I mean, I, I, I look at uh, daily life kind of as a struggle. Mm-hmm. There's all these things that my flesh wants me to do when I'm yeah. And then you see the people around you who are just like blissfully, you know, yeah. skating through life, doing whatever the body wants them to do. And well, that's yeah, no, the metaphors, the metaphors Paul uses for the life is soldier. No soldier on active duty um, can it bothers himself with the things of this world, of a um, race being run, or of a farmer reaping and sowing a crop. All of those involve toil, work, hardship. Paul does not paint the Christian life as a vacation or as sleeping in or, you know what I mean? It's, it's not for nothing. These are the metaphors, you know, finishing, running your course, um, fighting the good fights, um, working hard in God's field as his co-laborers planting and reaping and sowing. Those are the metaphors that I see in scripture of the Christian life. Yes, Greg. So by refusing to ever allow myself to eat broccoli, that's 
Yes, yes. <laughs> Greg knows how strong the temptation to eat broccoli is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Elsa. Yeah. Yeah, well, let me, read, let me read one other quote. Can I get my other quote back, Natalie? Natalie likes my C.S. Lewis quotes, so I gave her the other quote I didn't read as well. Um, this is from Bruce Ware. This is another neat observation. Because Jesus never sinned, he fought every temptation every time fully, experiencing the unmitigated force of each temptation until he had successfully defeated each one, coming out the other side victorious. Isn't it clear to any of us who thinks about the sin of our own lives that one of the reasons we give in to temptation is that then the pressure is finally off, the battle is over once we've given in, the immediate sense of release from the struggle is deeply appealing when we don't want to keep on fighting. So marvel at our sinless Savior because he never sinned when tempted means that he fought every temptation fully to the end. He never, not once, gave in to that delicious and enticing longing simply to be done with the struggle by yielding to the temptation. Rather, he fought and fought and fought, and in every temptation, every time, always coming out the other side victorious. Surely we see his struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane illustrates just this. Why did Jesus pray three times, even sweating drops of blood in his agony over obeying the will of the Father? Was it not because he had to keep fighting in order to win? His obedience was extremely difficult. And the fight had to be engaged as the temptation continued. So the battle also had to continue. So marvel at this. Our Savior fought every temptation, every time, all the way to the end, never once gave in. Marvel and wonder and worship. That's absolutely, I think, the point Luke wants us to get from Luke 4. Not, well, obviously he's God. Duh. That's, I think, Bruce swears onto something when he says that's what we're supposed to be seeing. Um, so, yeah. Questions? Any further questions on this? I'll, I'll take, I gotta, we can. Yes! Sure. You, you can come talk to Natalie. She'll charge you. Okay. The C.S. Lewis quotes from Mere Christianity, uh, the other one's from Bruce Ware's book on the humanity of Jesus. Um, yes, Jim. Um, we know that Satan could offer Jesus the world because he is the God of the world. Yeah. And we know in Revelation that it says at some point the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God. Lord. Yeah. So there's some place in Scripture that defines exactly when this world became the kingdom of Satan. Was that at the fall? I think it probably was at the fall. Certainly, by the time of Daniel, the prince of the power of the, of the principality of Persia withstood the. I mean, so already the the demonic forces are organized by region, as early as Daniel, if not earlier. Um, so I, I don't I don't fully know when, but it, it's before the cross. Certainly, um, I'm just trying to think out loud when when do we see that? But yeah. Um, No, I'll think about it. If someone's got a thought on that, let me know. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, but it's before. It's, but the, but it, but this, the world being under the sway of the evil ones predates that. So Paul in Ephesians 2 can talk about how we all formerly, like them, walked around following the course of the principality of the rulers of the air, doing his will. Jesus looks at the Jews in John 8 and calls me, you sons of your father, the devil, your desires to do his desire. He's a liar from the beginning. So already that's in play. So, so whatever's going on in Revelation, it absolutely does. It either isn't describing the transfer or it's describing something that's already taken place. Um, so like I said, by Daniel, um, Already, you've got the prince of the power of the principality of Persia, withstanding the angel who sent to talk to Daniel. Whatever that's going on there with that, so they're already spread out, organized uh, in 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 um, in that dominion. So, but I do think that that Satan overstated his case of what he could offer him. But yeah, that that, that ultimately comes down to the temptation is both both people are offering the same thing. One's got a lot of suffering to get to it. The other just has some false worship. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of times those can be the tough decisions. I mean, think about, think about Ishmael. A- a- Abraham wants the same thing God wants, a dis- child. Will you trust and wait on God, or you do it yourself? Right? And it's not that Abraham's seeking something bad. He, he just seeks it the wrong way. How does Saul lose the dynasty? He's waiting for Samuel to show up and offer a sacrifice. Samuel, it's the last day, it's the last hour. He doesn't look like he's showing up, so Saul does the sacrifice. He's, in some sense, is doing the right thing. He's just not obeying God. So frequently, um, how we pursue our goals is, is the issue, not what the goal is. It's even the same, it's the same conflict with um, Abraham and the rich man. Father Abraham, send back Lazarus so that my brothers will hear and not come to this place. Now, both of them share the same goal, people not going to hell. Methodology is the debate. Will the scriptures be sufficient, or do you need people rising from the dead? Both have the same. The goal isn't the issue. Method. So, so frequently our temptations aren't about wanting bad things. It's about the methodology of getting good things. Now, other times our temptations flat out are just, I want something wicked. You know? But we need to observe both, because frequently we can get confused. Well, what I want isn't bad. Fair enough. And the conflict in the Middle East started that way, too. You know? So... <laughs> Um, what Abraham was seeking wasn't a bad thing, an offspring. just wasn't going about it God's way. So, so oftentimes I've talked to people who get confused, though, because what I, what I want isn't bad. I want a good marriage, or I want my kids to do well, or I want whatever it is they want. And it's, well, how are you going about pursuing this good thing? That, that frequently can be where the temptation lies and the trial lies. Um, any? Yes, Linda. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me look. Yeah. Well, even later in Luke, right? If Satan, um, Satan's the rule of this world, but it's 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 a provisional, permitted rule because Jesus has no problem kicking demons out of people. He has no problem telling, "Don't you tell anyone who I." I mean, he's he's not acting like they're acting like he's an authority. They're not acting like, this is our land and our kingdom, and we don't have to listen to you. So Jesus in this world is, is not under the authority of Satan, and Jesus, at the minimum, can be a counter-authority of at least equal or greater authority than Satan, because the demons do what he says. 
They don't say, well, we're not under your authority. This is Satan's world, so we do what he says. When Jesus says, get out of them, go into the pigs, when Jesus says, shut up, whatever, they, they jump to and obey. So that's one of the indications that show that Satan's power and rule is not uncontested or absolute even now. Um, it, it, it's not, he, that, those are the types of things I'd look to for why I think he's overselling it some, because already there's another principle of authority that's already making inroads and already setting up embassies and already counter-pushing against Satan's rule. Satan's rule is not total and it's not absolute. Even if it is exhaustive, it's like, it's like he, he, he exercises influence over the whole earth, but his influence isn't absolute um, in any one particular place. Is that, yes, Greg? Be, be careful how you say that, Greg. <laughs> oh, no, I spent hours dancing around how do you say things to not... Yeah, yeah. But to compare Jesus to Satan is to perpetuate the myth that they yes. are uh, these two forces. Yes. Uh, where, where yes. 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 Nothing. Yes. Uh, and, and, and I spoke carefully. All I'm saying is we know that as a result of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. He is exalted. He, he gets a greater position and a greater authority and a greater um, honor and privilege. And that is the Jesus, the exalted Jesus to whom we deal now with. He is the Jesus that is. is the Jesus on the other side of Philippians 2. Um, the Jesus of the Gospels is a humbled Jesus. And in that state, minimally, he still represents an authority at least equal to or exceeding Satan in his humble state. So I'm not, I'm not saying he's equal to Satan or their, their peers. I'm just saying even in his lesser authority, even in his pre-exaltation, that's probably a safer way to say it, he still, there's no question. When he tells demons what to do, they obey. There's no tug. Well, say. He, they just obey. He is a superior authority. There's not even a question to equal. He is a superior authority to Satan on this earth, even prior to his exaltation. Uh, that's, that's, yes. Sure, sure. Yeah, um, absolutely. One of the things, by the way, I didn't have time in the message is, is I'm trying to remember who's the author. I think it's um, Eldritch. Makes a big deal out of, in his book, Wild at Heart, um, if you're the son of man and Jesus is wrestling, is he the son of man? Greek, we haven't got to this yet. There's three ways to ask a question. And a first class, condi- just, just short answer is this. The way the question is phrased, the, the, the protasis is assumed. The, the premise is assumed. You could really translate it since. I won't challenge your claim. Since you're the son of man. What he's basically saying is because you are the one whom the Father is well pleased, because all these scriptures apply to you, therefore you have the authority, do it. He's not saying, I doubt you're the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, prove it to me. Rather, he's granting the claim and then inferring based on the claim. Does that, does that make sense? This is not an identity crisis for Jesus. That's not the nature of the temptation. Am I really? I'm, I'm pretty sure Eldritch runs that direction with it. Jesus, is. that's the question up for grabs. Is he really the son of man? That's not what's going on. Satan is, you could just easily translate it since you're the son of man, son of God, sorry, command these stones into, into bread. He's just heard the father declare it. It's not like that's the debate. You know what I mean? That, that's not the question that's being debated. If anything, Satan's aware the father said it. Okay, now that now that we know who you are, now that's established. Because of that, do this is the is the argument. Um, okay, ten minutes. Yes, Jim. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. This is the, the nature of the temptation is not identity crisis for Jesus. Am I really the son of God? You know, that, that's not what's going on. It's much more because you're the son of God, exercise your prerogatives, exercise your rights, exercise your privileges. Not anyone can command stone to bread, but you can, and you're hungry, so why don't you do it? Well, my father led me out here to teach me to rely on him. You know, and those are weird things to say, and, I, and I'm only comfortable saying it because things like Hebrews. He learned obedience to the things he suffered. He learned, and there's a sense in which experientially Jesus learns to trust God. He's, the son has never had to trust the father because there's never any, like, take my word, trust me. The, the relationship was perfect. The father shows him all that he himself is doing. There's never been a time in the Trinity's relationship where the father just has to say, well, just trust me. And now in the incarnation, and Jesus is not exercising. I mean, you got to say these things carefully. He possesses omniscience, but he's not exercising omniscience. He doesn't stop possessing it. He stops utilizing it. I mean, let me use an analogy that I was talking with Dave Kingery uh, a while back, and we use this analogy. Um, we just bought a van. Turns out, like last year, that the van we bought used has all the bells and whistles. So let's just assume I've got the, the what do they call that, the like the heated seats and all those things. We have the, pre- we have the premium package, okay? And imagine um, Greg has the, the, the low-level package. He has the bare-bones package, okay? Same fan. Now, further imagine that I can turn off all those premium features. I got a switch I can flip that turns them all off. And the heat seats no longer heat. The windows no longer go up and down automatically. The remote key fob no longer locks and unlocks the door. I can say truly... The experience of operating and driving my van is now no different than Greg's. They're, they're interchangeable, right? If I've, if I've turned off, if I'm not utilizing those benefits, then I know what it's like to drive Greg's van, right? I can say that to him. Greg, I know exactly what it's like to drive your van. No, you don't. Yours is the luxury model. Yeah, but, but even though my van still possesses all those things, it's not like I took them out of the van. If I took them out of the van, it wouldn't be the... What we're trying to hold on to is Jesus is God. Jesus was made in every way like his brothers, and his life that he lived is similar to mine. That's what we're trying to get, is hold on to both of those. And we don't want to say anything that makes it sound like he's not God, but we also don't want his experience to be so dissimilar to ours that he can't sympathize because the scriptures make that point. So I'm giving you a clumsy example where I can say, look, I know exactly what it's like to drive Greg's van because I'm not utilizing those features. I still possess them. My van never stops being the luxury model, right? It never stops being the luxury model. I can, Jesus never stops being God. And yet, if he chooses voluntarily not to utilize those, those aspects, so Jesus can grow in wisdom. He possesses the attribute of omniscience. He does not functionally operate with it. He chooses to limit his knowledge. And so, um, and those are the types of careful wordings you've got to say to avoid all sorts of heresies, you know, <laughs> that, are, that are bound when you're dealing with Christ. Um, any questions on that? We've got five minutes, so probably not going to go to speaking in tongues. Um, I know, right? Yes, Jeremy. No, 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 no. Was, God, was he said, you need to be out here until I bring you out. Well, that's, no, no, that's a great question. If God magically granted me the supernatural ability to turn stone into bread, if I possess that power, I don't believe there would be any inherent moral conflict in me using it when I'm hungry. 
Fair enough, right? So, so there's nothing fundamentally wrong if someone has that power, if God's granted someone or someone innately has the power to turn stone to bread. Oh, yeah, later on he does it to feed people. Yeah, yeah. The issue is this, and I think this is the key in the Deuteronomy context. Let's go to Deuteronomy. Go to Deuteronomy. Um, Deuteronomy 8. Um, you open up to Deuteronomy 8. This is a great place to close on. And this is where Jesus' Jesus' quotation, I think, makes it clear. So the connection, Deuteronomy 8, I think, could explain it. That Jesus understood that the Father's purpose for him in going to the wilderness was to not eat. Okay? And therefore, if that's God's purpose, then to command the stones to turn to bread is to abandon that purpose. So I think it's, I think it's mission-specific for this point of time in his life. It's not across the boards wrong for people with that power to exercise that power. Because it said in verse 1, you can say in, say in Deuteronomy 8, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing in those days. Inference, he's led by the Spirit to eat nothing for 40 days. It's not as though Jesus is saying to himself, well, as long as the Spirit's leading me, I think I might as well not eat. I think the inference is, just as the Spirit was leading him in the wilderness, the Spirit led him not to eat. Okay? So then, Satan says, since you're the Son of Man, command these breads to become stone. And then Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, 3. Part of it. I want to read it from verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you should be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord your God swore to give your fathers, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you. Now there's the key word. The Spirit, Luke just said, was led Jesus. Okay? Moses tells the people of Israel how God led them, and he led them for 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know the man does not live by bread alone. God was teaching them something. That's the whole point. It wasn't accidental. This gets back to God not being a sadist. Why would God? It's not as though God's like, I'm going to give them a hard time. He's teaching them something. The only way to teach them is to get rid of all the props, all the other ways that you're either going to starve to death or I'm going to care for you. And I'm going to teach you that. I'm going to teach you that lesson. And so he brings them out where they have no other way of getting food. They can't go buy it from a market. If God doesn't make manna, they starve. If God doesn't make water come out of a rock, they die of thirst, period. End of story. And only in that context will they learn, they're humbled, to rely on God. Okay? The Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness for, I believe, Jesus' quoting of this, a similar purpose. And he understands that. And so because God is teaching him, getting back to he learned obedience to the things he suffered, because God is experientially teaching, showing, testing, proving Jesus in this way, it would be inappropriate for him to use his own power to make stones turn into bread. No, I'm here to learn by experience fully and to perfectly model that man, that what, what Israel failed to learn in the wilderness. What Israel failed to learn in the wilderness, Jesus learns and perfectly exemplifies. Does, does that make sense? And so that's the connection. God led them, the Spirit led Jesus. And so no, it's not as though I'm hungry and I've got five bucks in my pocket, I shouldn't go to buy something to eat. You know what I mean? Um, 
<laughs> right. No, I'm not being led to not. Yeah. And I don't know how Jesus knew that was God's purpose. Jesus' fellowship with the Father through the Spirit is inscrutable. He, he, he stays up praying all night, and suddenly he knows which disciples to pick. You know I mean, and th- there's a sense in which his relationship and connection to the Father is qualitatively different than ours. You know, so you know, I, I don't know how he knew that. He knew that. Okay, one minute. Anything else? What? He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yes. Yes. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to go beyond what's written. I don't know how Luke knew. He did research. By the way, Luke's order is different than Matthew's, but Luke doesn't say, and then, and then. So Luke doesn't claim perfect. Luke is not claiming chronological order for the tests. In fact, the reason I think he switches the order around is because in, in, by putting the order this way, Satan's quotation of scripture and is upping his game. The first two tests are, can you really trust God with yourself? Really? Really? Wouldn't it be better for you to, you know... Then the final one's like, okay, if you're going to trust God, then why don't you go all the way? Go varsity, really trust him, jump off the temple. You know? And he quotes scripture. And so there's a sort of crescendo at that point. But in Matthew's account, the, uh, the final temptation is for all the world. But there's nothing in Luke that gives chronology. So Luke's just saying, and Satan did this, and Satan did this. And it's absolutely true. Luke isn't claiming chronology. In fact, Luke's whole point is he was in the desert for 30 days, 40 days being tested by Satan. And then it's almost as though, and here's one of the temptations Satan did, and here's another one of the temptations Satan did, and here's another one of the temptations Satan did. And only when the entire course was complete does Satan withdraw, according to Luke. So Luke doesn't even say at the end of the final temptation he leaves. He leaves after the completion of the gamut, of running the gamut. You know what I mean? So Matthew does have the time markers. So Matthew's ordering is the order it occurred in. Luke's just saying, he was in the wilderness being led by the Spirit, being tempted by the devil for 40 days. He was very hungry, and Satan did this, and Satan did that, and Satan did this. And when Satan was done, he left, right? So there's, yeah, if, if you compare the two, you'll notice that, but it's not a problem because Luke doesn't claim to be giving chronological order. Um, Okay, we're at time. Let's close in prayer, and we'll break. Lord God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these people who've come out in the snow and stuck around in the snow. And Lord, we just uh, we don't want to go beyond what is written, but we do want to see what is there to be seen. And so, Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to have a greater appreciation for the the valor, the glory, the honor the, of our Savior, that we would appreciate how hard he fought for you and on our behalf, how how great was his fight, how great was his victory over hell and death and the devil. And Lord, help us to follow suit, to imitate his pattern, that we might rely on your word, your spirit, um, and prayer, so that we might be victorious in temptation as well. In Jesus' name, amen.